yippee ki movie fans. We're back with the Film Frontier. I'm Felicity, and this is Clarence. Uh, we're back with um, a new film from the Coen brothers, uh, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which was made um, exclusively for Netflix. It got a limited uh, theatrical release. I think it played like literally over a weekend here yeah. in L.A. It, at one theater that was far yeah. away from us. So unfortunately, we did not get to see it in theaters as much as we would have liked to. Right. Um, but just the availability... <laughs> it didn't make it happen for right. us. Um, so we did watch it on uh, Netflix in our home. Yes. Um, but that makes it convenient enough for all of our listeners to watch it if they have Netflix accounts. You can just, you know, pop just it right on. Pop it right up. And and, uh... and I think even before we talk about it, I can say I would recommend watching it. You know, even if you may not like it, I think it's an intriguing watch. Yes, definitely worthwhile. And uh, this way we won't spoil anything for you if you haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a film that's, it's an anthology film. It covers, uh, comprises of six stories of the Old West, um, each one a little different. I think all sort of dealing with death in one way or another. And I guess we'll just tackle them, uh, one at a time. Mm Mm-hmm. So you want to go ahead and start with the first one? Sure. The first episode is the title episode, uh, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Uh, the film opens with like a old cloth bound book, um, that's like tales of the Old West and... It opens to each chapter with a like a plate, uh, colored plate illustration featuring a moment from each short story. The first one is uh, again, as I said, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, starring Tim Blake Nelson. Clancy Brown is in there. David Crumholtz is in there. Willie Watson from the band Old Crow Medicine Show. Right, right. Which is appropriate because this is uh, a singing cowboy uh, short. Buster is sort of a dressed like a Gene Autry, Roy Rogers type, but a, a, a very demented uh, Gene Autry or uh, Roy Rogers type singing cowboy. He's, he opens with him singing the son, a Sons of the Pioneers song, which is very appropriate. All day I faced the barren waste without the taste of water, crude water. But he's also uh, got a uh, murderous streak. Um, he's a very upbeat singing this song. When we first see him, it's a, a wide shot of Monument Valley. Right. Um, a very iconic image. And he's there in his, his white duds on a white pony. White hat. Uh, you know, he doesn't have his hands on the reins because he's got his hands on the guitar. Right. And... <laughs> he's very cheerful, very upbeat, very positive. Addresses the camera. Uh... Yeah, there's a lot of fourth wall breaking in this one. Yeah. And in the story, he uh, stops at a cantina in the middle of nowhere, one of those typical uh, cantinas. And he, as he enters, it's filled with just the most, the roughest looking bunch of uh, outlaws you can imagine. It feels like something out of a spaghetti western, the way these guys look. Definitely not uh, in keeping with his uh, singing cowboy attire. Yeah, it's kind of a blending of generations of yes. filmed westerns with with these characters. and But eventually it plays out that our white singing cowboy sort of murders everyone in the yes. cantina in a very brutal, violent way, which is how a lot of the violence plays out in this film is very sudden, very up against the contrast of these kind of upbeat, quirky, humorous situations and characters. Right, right. It's very brutal. And, and then it's all of a sudden a, a gunshot and blood splatters on yes. the wall. <laughs> and he makes quick work of everyone in the bar and mm-hmm. just slaughters everyone and, uh, it's almost like a Looney Tunes cartoon yeah. or something. It reminds me of uh, a little bit like Raising Arizona or something mm-hmm. in that of, of the Coen brothers, which I guess they wrote this particular episode 
what, like 20 years ago yeah. or something? Yeah, so would that match up with Raising I don't, no, 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 that would be, yeah. yeah. But you, you say like Looney Tunes, and now that I'm thinking about it, also the fourth wall breaking is yes, kind of like yes. Bugs Bunny t- turning the camera. Right, and, and yeah, Buster's, yeah, he's got a way with words as well as with a song, and uh, he's often addressing camera. He takes things very matter-of-factly. He doesn't, he's not rattled by uh, his incident in the bar. But he is rattled by people calling him wrong True. nicknames. Yes. He has a million <laughs> nicknames. The songbird of San Saba. Yeah, the San Saba songbird. Yeah, yeah. Um, and all kinds of things. But then someone calls him a twit, yes. and that pushes him over <laughs> he the edge. Care for and, that. The, and at the beginning, he's annoyed that he's called a misanthrope. Yes, which he doesn't agree with. <laughs> no. But he ends up heading to a another a larger, bar. Yeah, like a larger, like a town, like a like your traditional movie set town, uh, and goes into a big saloon where he's supposed to check his weapon at the door. Frenchman's Gulch. This town is new to me. Hold on, son. How's policy? Here's a six-shooter. You'll be wanting the senorita pistols as well? Everything. How's policy? Feel a bit naked, but I guess with everyone similarly disadvantaged, there's scant chance of misadventure. I'm out. Well, this is well-timed. You gentlemen mind if I take his spot? If you play his hand. I would prefer not to. It is too late. You have regarded the cards. You seen them, you play them. I ain't any. It's the other hombre, aren't it? You seen them, you play them. And if and I don't? You play them cards, fancy damn. Can't no one compel another man to engage in recreation. Certainly not a son of a gun as ill-humored as yourself. And as for names, my horse is Dan. I'm Buster. Buster Scruggs. Buster Scruggs? The run from Riata Pass? And this pistol? I do hail from Riata Pass, which is in the county of San Saba. Being the witch of why the sand saba songbird is my sobriquet of preference. But right now, I'd appreciate it if you'd deposit your weapon in the receptacle by the swinging doors, which concealing of it on your person in the first place was a violation of the rules of this establishment and an offense against local norms. And if and I don't. And uh, he dispatches Clancy in a very amusing and uh, surprising and bloody awful way. Yeah. And then sings a song about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Despite Clancy's horrifying yes. corpse on the on the ground, all just a completely red, decaying face. Yes. Powder burns and uh yeah, it's awful. Early Joe the gambler, he will gamble never more. His days of stud and hold them they are done. And then uh, after uh, killing off, I guess, was it Clancy's brother or friend or something who, who was upset that Buster killed him? Uh, he's about to leave town when another singing cowboy comes riding in playing a harmonica. And that's Willie Watson. Yes. 
And for the first time, it's somebody's kind of shown him who the new boss is in town. Right. It's 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 this younger cowboy. Right. It's the in. the old convention of the you know the young younger cowboy trying to make his name against the best, and uh, Buster is the best at gunslinging and being a song a singer. Buster Scruggs. The same. You make a sweet noise there, partner. That's high praise coming from the San Saba songbird. Herald of Demise. I've been hunting you up on account of they say you're the one to beat. Singing and slinging guns. Another young fella with something to prove. I gotta set myself up in the undertaking business. Stop doing all the skill work so another man can profit. But then, do I want to wear a black suit? And Buster uh, casually walks up and thinking this is going to be no problem. And next thing you know, he finds a bullet in his forehead. Well, that ain't good. And he's floating up to heaven. Yes. And singing, singing again. a song. <laughs> and he's certain he's going to heaven because there are so many songs about it. I should have seen this coming. Can't be top dog forever. Let me tell you, buddy, there's a faster gun. Coming over yonder when tomorrow comes. Let me tell you, buddy, and it won't be long till you find yourself singing your last cowboy song. Yippee ki yay, when the roundup ends. Yippee ki yay, and the campfire dim. If he shouts and he sings When a cowboy trades his spurs for Wayne Yeah, what did you think of that that episode? Uh, I think it was my favorite one. I think Tim Blake Nelson gives such an amazing performance. He's, he's great. It's it's something memorable, and some, but something recognizable, you think, at first, that's then twisted on his head. Yes. And it's memorable both because of his performance, because of his wardrobe, because of of how much it is about him that everyone is basing their actions around his character. Right. And I, I think it's, it was a good decision to make it the number one in this anthology, the, the opener, because it really introduces you to the world, what the Coens are kind of doing mm-hmm. with this by by sort of adding another level to their storytelling of also analyzing kind of what the Western film is and yes. what these Western characters are. Yeah, sort of mashing up the singing cowboy, more, uh, you know, innocent era with the violence of, of the genre and, and just, you know, putting the violence up front and how brutal it could be and uh, just sort of mashing those together, I thought, in an interesting way. And it's a very, it's a funny segment, yeah, I think. Yeah, Because, yeah. again, the dialogue is great and Tim Blake Nelson delivers yeah. it. Uh, you know, it's really good. And he spent six months, Tim Blake Nelson spent six months learning the pistol tricks wow. as well as how to play guitar. Wow. And it's for, you know, a 20-minute yeah, short, essentially. <laughs> But it's for the Coen brothers. So, yeah, you got to do it. Yeah. And and he's also one of the few we see in this film that are that is a previous collaborator with the Coens. That's true. That's true. Which there I thought are... was interesting. Given the amount of cast there is in this movie, that you yes. actually don't get a lot of their usual players yeah, in their no, ensemble. Yeah, no John Goodman, Turturro, anybody like that. Steve Buscemi, Buscemi yeah. yeah. But it is it is great to see some new faces working yes. with the Coens. Yes, Because also I imagine every actor in town wants to work with them. <laughs> I'm, yes, I'm sure.
The next segment is called um, Near Algodones, and it's a bank robbery sequence. Uh, we open it opens on a, a cowboy in a duster uh, standing next to a, you know outside a bank uh, in the middle of the plains and contemplating going in. And he goes in. The, there's only one teller in there, played by Stephen Root, uh, in a wonderful performance. Ever been robbed? Not have two times attempted, I should say. One fella I shot dead. Bingo! The other I held for the marshal. Both his legs were shredded. Some had to lock him in the vault there. Marshal don't come through but once a month, and he just visited the previous week. Had to billet that scamp for what? Three weeks applying a poultice of wet leaves and urine. He's in human now. Busting rocks, still a little gippy from what they say. Fella by the name of Chivalry, uh, Chivalry, unless I misremember, said his happy was. Then one thing leads to another, and uh, he finds he's uh, hit a bank that is more than uh, he can handle. Yeah, yeah. It, they, they're equipped. They're kind of yes. these, uh, this, a rough bank that knows how to handle any intruders, and yeah. they've got a whole setup of guns yes. along the counter. <laughs> Shotguns below <laughs> to the... To knock yeah. out any troublemakers, and Stephen Root comes out with this... Uh, Armor made out of pans. Pots and, and pans, uh, yeah. So you can ward off any bullets, any return fire from uh, Franco's bank robber. What did you think of this one? Um, it, I, I liked every segment, I yeah. should say, kind of off the bat. Um, I felt like this one was a little bit grittier than the first one, a little bit more tethered to yes. Earth, even though you have this eccentric character in Steven Root. Uh, what did you think of uh, Franco's performance? Um, he was okay. Not really someone I would think of in a Western or for a Western. He was, his wardrobe looked great, I thought. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's definitely your style. Yeah. Of, the duster yeah. and the, and the low brim, the and flat brimmed hat. And yeah. you get a nice shot of him climbing over the bank counter yes. and his duster flies Flying. over yeah. and it's very classy. Um, he was all right though. I mean, you know, what did you think? He wasn't my favorite in the film. I think he was, he'd be further down the list. It yeah. Just, like he was just very serviceable. Yes, that, that's that's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. I would agree with that. But you know, like he, I think fit the mold of a cowboy. It wasn't like I thought he was some kind of city slicker. Yeah. in costume or anything yeah, like yeah. that. I know he's like a fan of Cormac McCarthy, and right. and so I know that he is familiar with the genre, and I'm sure yeah was happy to get his hands dirty in this. Sure. I would just say, watching him and that doesn't make me clamor for a James Franco Western sure. or something. Yeah. You know? And then I guess I should say that, that he ends up getting caught and uh, they uh, are going to lynch him. A group of uh, townspeople are just going to lynch him to a tree and then uh, he is saved by uh, a Native American attack. He hooks up with another guy and then finds himself uh, a victim of circumstance and back in a noose and this time for, uh, for good. First time. And once again, it's kind of another character that you almost think is in a situation in a a death situation, but he seems like he's gonna get away with it. Yes, just yes. like in the Tim Blake Nelson is like he's a little bit haughty and yeah, and then on the brink of death, but then it catches gets up it. Yeah. yeah. So we've all, we've got two of our main characters already dead. Yeah. In their segments, so it's it's kind of a theme. What did you think of the Comanche attack or the whatever Indian yeah, they were? The, the, I, yeah. I don't think that it's ever made clear no, it's not in made in this movie what any of the Native Americans no tribes no are. tribe yeah that's me trying to guess yeah the Native Americans aren't given given any kind of characterization or anything. Um, I don't just, even know if there's dialogue. No, I don't think so. Yeah. It's other just, than hoots and hollers. Yeah, yeah. It's just they're sort of a plot device. Mm-hmm. Um, they come. 
they kill all the, the... They're almost a deus ex machina yeah. for the James Franco that's, character. That's absolutely, yeah. Kind of giving him his saving grace as he's about to be killed. They they leave him uh, with the noose around his neck on the horse. Um, as sort of, and They find that amusing. They don't kill him, and they just ride off and leave him there. And eventually he's rescued. Mm-hmm. But yeah, definitely, that's, that's really the purpose they serve in the story. And we'll get to another appearance by a group of Indians in, in a later segment, but... I, I do think it's interesting that there's not really a uh, personification of of any Indians, nor are they ever presented in a less than negative light. I mean, in this one, you have have them have a sense of humor. Yes. But they're still attacking. Yes. They're still killing a lot of people. Right. And it's the same with the later segment that we'll get to. Yeah. But I would contend that... Uh killing the, the white settlers is what they oh, ought sure. to be doing so but they're still not getting a story no they're not they're not there's no characterization of anything and and, no dialogue even. right yeah and i would maybe argue that given that this is an anthology film that's tackling a lot of different subgenres of the western yeah. that's that's missing a big subgenre is the the indians yeah And then the third sequence is called Meal Ticket. It stars uh, Liam Neeson and... Harry of... Melling? Yes. Uh, who you might have seen from the Harry Potter films. He plays Dudley Dursley, who is... That means nothing to me. <laughs> you young kids out there will know exactly who I'm talking about. <laughs> so Liam Neeson plays a impresario, a traveling show performing around the West. He has his, his act, his only act is, who Harry Melling plays, is an armless, legless uh, man... Uh, who recites Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and Shelley and Shakespeare. He, they're traveling sort of uh, the Northwest, or yeah, the Northwest um, in the snow and the mountains. These little mountain towns where the townspeople have to, you know, bring their own crates to sit on. And chair, and... Yeah, it's all outdoor performances, and they go to, from town to town to increasingly dwindling uh, numbers in the audience. As the weather gets worse, it yeah. becomes blustery, it becomes very rainy, and... They are, meanwhile, just living in the woods, you know, night by night, as Liam Neeson's character is sort of tending to Harry Melling's character, yes. because, of course, he he can't manage by himself very well. And um, they're, they're living off whatever the, whatever tips they can collect from the crowd after each performance. And as, as the numbers are dwindling, um, Liam is not sure what to do. And then he runs across uh, another performance in town that has drawn a, hu- drawn a huge crowd, and it's a chicken that can do math. And he decides to purchase the chicken. And now he's got uh, the chicken and uh, Harry Melling. And he has a decision to make from there. This one, it's it's not a lot of dialogue. Right. It's, I would say, mainly just the speeches that Harry Melling gives. Um, otherwise, I would almost call him perhaps a mute it, without his, his ready-to-go speeches. And even Liam Neeson does not have a lot of dialogue. He's mostly just saying, you know, ta, thanks for the right. tip. He visits a whorehouse at one point and, you know, talks to the whore and uh, uh, I think gets drunk and sings to himself by the campfire. But the two of them never speak to each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, Melling's character never speaks unless he's performing. And I don't know whether that's the nature of his abilities, right. um, whether he can't speak or think on his own or whatever, or if he just hates Liam Neeson's character so much and they have no relationship outside of the production yeah. or or what that is. But he also doesn't speak, Harry Melling doesn't speak in the whorehouse scene. Exactly, yeah. 
And but again, I don't know that he would. Just maybe he's very shy. Who knows? <laughs> but it's interesting. Like when he's performing, he's he's quite the good. most eloquent. Yes. yes, performer. But when they're you know at the campfire after after the show, he almost seems like unaware of what's going on. Or he's a little bit babyish. Yeah. Both because he's not speaking, he's he kind of grunts for more food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And. And also babyish because he can't do it. He can't go to the bathroom by himself. He can't feed himself. Yeah, can't do anything. Any of that, yeah. yeah. But you do see his jealousy and sort of anger come out when in like one look that he gives to the chicken at the end. (laughs) He's like, oh boy, I'm in trouble. Yeah, he can sense the chicken is a competition Mm -hmm. for him. Um, Just in that he's less trouble. Yeah. Uh, This episode, I believe you said the Coens mentioned uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller as... Or actually it was the production designer, Jess Gonchor, Gonchor, I'm Mm. not sure the pronunciation. Um, He described it like McCabe and Mrs. Miller because it's, quote, moist, damp, wet, high altitude, snowy, dark. Yeah. Unquote. Yeah. Um, And I think you definitely feel that. And and I mentioned that to you. And you also said that uh, Liam Neeson's look is very uh, like McCabe. Yeah. It's a bit like Warren Beatty's uh, wardrobe in that film. He's got the buffalo coat and the the derby hat. And uh, yeah, it definitely has a, evokes that film. Yeah. Yeah. It was great to see that kind of vibe in that setting because it's, it's just another look at the the western because because the american west is so vast you get yes. so many different climes yes and we've seen monument valley we've seen like a new mexico desert town um but here you get the northwest mm-hmm. yeah i believe uh near algodonis was filmed in new mexico and you get the sort of the plains look at that and buster uh scruggs uh, beside the opening shot in monument valley i think is maybe new mexico as well and then of course in the episode the later episodes we go to even different locations yeah and i think that's part of what I like personally about the Coen's work, you know, overall is their use of location. They've, of course, famously used Minnesota, right. Mississippi, right. Uh, you know, Arizona, Arizona. so yeah. on and so forth. Yeah. And that really comes out in their work because I'm someone that hates seeing the same old New York settings over and over right, again right. or just a generic, you know, apartment or, right. you know, whatever. And in their Westerns, mm-hmm. you know, they've done True Grit. They've done No Country for Old Men. And they've done this. Their Westerns also, I think, really evoke the area they're they're going to. It's not mm-hmm. a generic Western town. Right. It doesn't feel like a, a stage set, even if it is. Yeah. Um, I think they really get down to the production design or willing to go on location mm-hmm. and show Texas or show New Mexico. And even like something in Miller's Crossing, they, they evoke uh, like a depression era or prohibition era uh, city really well. And, and they capture that in a, in a way that's different than most mm-hmm. other films, I think. Yeah. And I just going back a little bit mm-hmm. to, to how it, this segment, the, um, Meal ticket. Meal ticket. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, how meal ticket was more dialogue free. That is also not something I think of typically as the Coens. Per- perhaps I'm wrong, but I tend to think of them as great with language, great with long speeches. Sure. Um, really using language to develop their characters. And here you see kind of a different side of that. Yeah. Yeah. Neeson's is really almost wordless in this mm-hmm. in this sequence. Yeah. And maybe even a. a purposeful turn on that maybe they didn't want to use language but it's exemplified in these speeches which they did not write true that's true that's true you get it but it's just not from them yeah
And so the next segment is called uh, All, All Gold Canyon. Um, it's based on a Jack London short story, which I think was a they've done a fairly faithful adaptation. I haven't read yeah, it. Yeah, I but, read it before yeah. recording, and it was pretty spot on, even down to the descriptions in the in the short in in the anthology it kind of opens on a scene of a deer in a meadow Mm -hmm. and it gets you know out out of the shot um (laughs) by the river once once our character comes in and it's the same thing in the short story it seemed like a lot of the same dialogue even Mm -hmm. so very faithful and i think we should attribute a lot of the storytelling to jack London for this one yeah um but why not he's a great writer (laughs) and this one uh stars tom waits as a grizzled prospector who uh, comes across this beautiful valley in the stream, and sort of reminded me of like Yosemite or, or yeah, something like that. I think that. it's actually near Telluride, Colorado. Okay. I think is where they shot. Okay. But he starts digging uh, to find the pocket of gold that he knows is there, and he's digging in the earth and then panning in the river and slowly, you know, pinpointing exactly where it is and disturbing the nature of the of the air there's an owl and butterflies and this deer that and and everything and as he uh digs his way into the the earth and finally finds that pocket he discovers someone's been laying and waiting for him until he found that pocket what he he, calls mr pocket yes mr pocket that's right and he gets a bullet in the back for it and this one it seems like he is dead as well but uh turns out not not so much yeah Yeah, i was was gonna say that for every I think almost all the other segments, you sort of get a glimpse of hope that maybe this will work out for the character and then it's suddenly taken away from you and the main character gets killed. This one is the opposite. You kind of dread what's going to happen and then a gunshot happens and you think, oh no, he's dead. But then it works out. And it's actually, I think, the only, you know, optimistic ending of, of all of them, really. I think so, yeah. I think he's our only main character who isn't dead or presumed to be dead by yeah. the end yeah i thought tom waits was great in this mm-hmm. i thought he gave a really wonderful performance um yeah we had a discussion over whether tom waits should act <laughs> more yeah or not you it started you you said oh he I should act more yeah let's see more of tom waits and yeah. i said ah, i don't know but not because i don't think he's a good actor <laughs> i simply think that it the performances are unique and i think maybe him acting more would make each one less special yeah, when yeah. they are so special. Yeah. You know, you remember some of his work with uh, Jarmusch, yeah. some, uh, you know, in Dracula, yes, yeah. Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, yeah, he's done he, a few films with Coppola. Um, he really stands out in every one and plays a different character in every one. Yeah. You know, he, he really embraces what the film is and is not playing it in any way like Tom Waits. Yeah. And it's interesting, like... Um, Talking about the the how things work out for him and the hopefulness for him, it's like when he goes up to the tree, he sees that owl. So he goes to climb up a tree to get his nest and steal its eggs. He takes all four of the eggs, then thinks better of it and puts a few back. Like maybe nature's like, okay, you're not so bad. I know? said that was actually my little hint yeah. that maybe he would. Yes turn out okay in this one because you see him making the right moral choice and then as he rides away with his goal the the butterflies return and the owl turn returns and the deer returns to where you know and there's just a a, a few uh piles of dirt where uh, tom waits has been where his character has been so it is hopeful that humans don't ruin everything always yeah yeah until later that we don't have to see. <laughs> Eventually they will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, li- I liked this sequence. Um, it was really visually uh, arresting and 
Uh, I guess we should say Bruno Debonel was the DP on this film, and this was the first film they shot uh, digitally. Maybe we should get back to that later. So. It was another another one of my favorites, I would say. Yeah. I'd say maybe first Buster Scruggs and then this one. Yeah. And, you know, who knows if I was just talking myself into this, but I said at the time that maybe I preferred those two over the rest because perhaps they had longer time to gestate because... Yeah. Buster Scruggs was one of the first ones they wrote like more than 20 years ago. Right. And then this one is a Jack London story from long ago. So perhaps they're more polished yeah. story-wise. Yeah. I mean, you know, I I don't have many criticisms for the others story-wise, but I think it's interesting that those are my two favorites yeah. and they maybe are the more polished. That's a good point. Yeah, I would agree with that. Those yeah. are, I think those might be my two favorites as well. And they also both feature standout performances yes, from yeah. Nelson and Waits. Yeah. And, and who who basically stand on their own. I mean, there yeah. aren't... I mean, Waits is by himself almost the entire until time. Until this yeah. kid comes in who doesn't have any lines and no. then is then quickly dispensed yeah. with. <laughs> it's basically Tom Waits interacting with the mountain. Yeah. You know? yeah. And he talks a lot to himself, which normally bothers me in a movie, but this time did not because he kind of seems like a crazy old prospector yeah. who has to talk to himself yeah, to I would, I, I entertain think, himself. Yeah, definitely. I think these guys out on alone in the wilderness like that would almost certainly talk to themselves yeah. after a while. Yeah. And it's also in the short story, him talking to himself, which you don't need as a device in a short story you can you know put his thoughts on the page in prose good point yeah um and i would assume that jack london knew what he was talking about having lived that very wild life i also wanted to mention in this segment uh the music of carter burwell a frequent collaborator with the coens this one really stood out in this segment to me it was one of my favorites especially there's a moment when the prospector finds finally finds the source of the gold and it's such a triumphant moment that then is immediately cut by by this you know looming moment of Mm -hmm. the guy and that is echoed so beautifully in the music yeah i agree Uh, the music is really really nice especially in this sequence um and i read that because Carter is such a frequent collaborator, he's allowed access to the script very early on in the process before shooting so that even the Coens can edit to their to mm. his music if they choose to. Interesting. And that you don't often get that with composers and directors. Right, right. Often they come later in the process during post-production. Right. I, I think it shows the work that go, went into this and perhaps the time allowed to him yeah the extra time that would make the difference yeah it sounds a little bit like how uh, Sergio Leone and Ennio Morricone had worked in the past yeah This segment is called The Girl Who Got Rattled. It's also based on a short story, and I'm blanking on the author. It's not someone I knew. But it's also a lot of contemporaneous accounts, I yes. think. Yes, I think they kind of scrapped most of what was in the story, just took a few elements out of it, and then based the rest of it on, yeah, real-life accounts. Um, and this is about a uh, young woman and her brother who were leaving on a wagon uh, train to the Oregon Trail to Oregon. Played by Zoe Kazan and uh, Jefferson Mays. Yes. And she is, has a prospect of marriage 
in Oregon with uh, a business associate of her brother who she has not met. Basically, if, if the associate approves of her, they'll get married. Um, they also have a little dog named uh, President Hayes. President Pierce. President Pierce, I'm sorry. Who uh, is a little scamp and barks a lot. And anyways, they're on the wagon train and the brother has uh, one of those movie coughs that always spell doom and he dies right away. And immediately. immediately. <laughs> I think he coughs and then two seconds later he's, he's dead. dead. Zoe Kazan's character finds herself with their hired boy who's helping them uh, demanding an exorbitant sum of money, which she goes to the... Uh, the wagon masters of the wagon train and explains the situation and they think that the kid's up to something that there's no way that her brother would have promised this uh, but she's not so sure because her brother apparently was pretty poor at business and kind of a shiftless character it seems that his money was buried with him and they yes. can't go back and find it yes. it's too far and there's no marker right and then also uh her dog actually her brother's dog has been barking and annoying everyone on the wagon train and they've gotten many complaints so or she's gotten many she's complaints gotten many because complaints. they think it, they assume it's hers. This little, you know, petite dog must yes. be the woman's, <laughs> uh, even though she doesn't seem to particularly care for it. <laughs> so that she goes to the wagon master with this problem, and they decide to shoot the dog. So he takes it off, tries to shoot it, but it gets away. And so they continue on, and and there's a lot of talk about how to handle the situation with Matt, their hired uh, boy, and uh, the wagon master, the, the the younger one of the two. Uh, proposes marriage to uh, Kazan's character and will take on the debt and handle that and she agrees to it. So as the train goes on from time to time we can hear the dog and uh, we get to a scene where Mr. Arthur, the older of the two wagon masters, uh, is looking for Zoe Kazan's character and the uh, Matt, the hired boy, tells her where she is and she's off in the distance. He rides off to find her. Turns out the dog is alive and she's with the dog who's having a fit barking at a bunch of prairie dogs in a prairie dog town, popping their heads out of the holes. And she's just there watching, laughing her yes, head off. she's delighted. Not aware of anything that could be wrong. No, and then uh, on the horizon, uh, Mr. Arthur sees a Native American on horseback uh, watching them. He uh, tries to, uh, he does the peace sign to him, but it is not returned, so he knows they're in trouble. And she does not quite understand the gravity of their situation until... A dozen or more or so more right up on the on the the ridge line. They hunker down for a front on attack. So Mr. Arthur warns her if he happens to get killed, he gives her a pistol with two bullets in it to finish herself, uh, because he doesn't want her to be captured by the uh, the Indians. And the attack starts, and the Indians uh, run into the prairie dog town, and their horses start breaking their legs and tripping and falling in the prairie dog holes, and Mr. Arthur fights them off as best he can. And uh, he, en he ends up uh, finishing them off or getting them to turn away by killing their leader. And he goes back to find Zoe Kazan uh, had shot herself prematurely. Because it appeared it that appeared. he had gotten attacked. Yeah. Uh, he really did get attacked, but it appeared that he had died. It looked like he might be done for, mm -hmm. and she followed his instructions. Yeah. And then it ends with him going off to have to, to tell. Dealt break the news to the younger yeah. man, Billy Knapp, that maybe he's not engaged after all. I thought this one was interesting. Um, it was shot in Nebraska, and they have like, I guess maybe 20-something wagons on this train. And it took about um, a month, I think. Yeah, and I, I listened to, or you, you and I both listened to a podcast of them on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, talking about the difficulties of uh, directing Ox mm -hmm. uh trying to pull wagons and horses and, and how much trouble that was. It you know? sounded like just a nightmare yeah. of a shoot. But this was, I think, beautifully shot as well. Very visually interesting. I like the character. I like Mr. Arthur. I thought he was a great 
grizzled, uh, you know, laconic character of the Old West. Played by Granger Hines. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, Billy Knapp, the younger wagon master, played by Bill Heck. Yeah. Um, who was not really a face I had seen no, before. No, I wasn't familiar with him. I think we realized that we probably had seen him in the show The Alienist. Yeah. But it's a character that's not really seen a lot. But he was great. And, and yeah. you believe the romance, I think, between him and Zoe Kazan's character. Definitely, yeah. And I think it's the only romance in the movie. But he gives a nice performance I thought and sort of a easygoing western type you know I believed him as as mm -hmm. as a wagon master and again this this sequence also has the a Native American attack and this one I think is totally antagonistic I mean, yes. they ignore the peace sign they kind of have some tricks up their sleeve in their attack and again no dialogue for no them. dialogue at all they write up the attack uh, they're described as savages by yeah, the yeah. the white characters and yeah which I think is it's appropriate for the time oh yes. certainly yeah. but if we're Talking about representation. Yes. <laughs> Maybe could do better. It seems but. like you could have had a sequence with Native Americans. Yeah. But, you know, the idea of giving the pistol to a woman to shoot herself at the end is a very common trope in Westerns. Although I don't know that you often see it where the woman actually does shoot True. herself. True, yeah. So that was kind of a nice, or not a nice twist, but an interesting uh, twist. <laughs> you also get the threat of a dog's death, which I feel That's like true. normally does not go over well. That's true. And they don't pay it off, right. which I feel like would have really angered people. Yes. Um, <laughs> and they are very casual about putting the dog Oh, for down. sure. <laughs> the only thing I can think of a similar type of thing that's as brutal as that is in Ozana's raid, there is an attack by some Apache an Apache raiding party, and a trooper, knowing he can't save this woman, just rides up and shoots her in the head himself, and mm. it's it's a pretty brutal scene. Next segment is uh, the Mortal Remains. It stars Tyne Daly, Brenda, uh, Brendan, Brendan Gleeson, Brendan Gleeson, thank uh, you, John Joe O'Neill, who I wasn't familiar with. I think he's a British actor. Saul Rubinek and Chelsea Ross. Chelsea Ross, yes. Um, and this is uh, about a group of stagecoach passengers. Uh, traveling at dusk, they sort of have a conversation about the nature of people. And you don't really know. Well, you know they're going through Fort Morgan. Um, but there's a mysterious coachman who... Yes. His policy is will not stop yes. no matter what happens. Um, but you do have this kind of weird group of characters together. You have a, a distinguished lady, an old trapper, a French gambler, and then these two men that describe themselves as reapers, harvesters of souls. We help people who have been adjudged to be ripe. You're bounty hunters. Literal man, cruel man. Yes. Fine. Bounty Hunters. An ugly title. As if emolument with a point. Is the cobbler not paid for his shoes? It's an honest calling. So, uh, him on the roof, he was wanted? Oh, Mr. Thorpe was very much wanted, judging by what they're paying for him. <laughs> What'd he do? Oh, I, I don't know. Does it matter? Just as you said, madam, there are two kinds of people. In our business, they are dead or alive. So... You will take them alive? I didn't say that. The three other passengers all seem to have a different point of view on the nature of people. They all think there's a duality to man, yes, but they yeah. have different thoughts on what um, that duality what that, Um This had a sort of Twilight Zone feel to me. And because think, there is a sort of supernatural edge to yes, it. Yes, yes. Um, they end up at Fort Morgan and it's night. There's no one there, but 
up at the top of the stairs, there's kind of a white light yes, yes. that they're going towards. There's a, the stairway to heaven or something. Um, and the coachman goes on his way after yes. he, he leaves the passengers. And they're all a little bit trepidatious as they enter the hotel. Yes. And the town is sort of fog shrouded and, and the buildings look very, uh, you know, just false front and, and intentionally so. Yeah, you said it, it was kind of like a Twilight Zone episode. And I actually think it's directly like a Twilight Zone episode, the five characters in search of an exit. Right. Which is about these five... We find out, spoiler for the Twilight Zone episode, <laughs> that they are um, all toys in a toy box trying to get out. A collection of question marks. Five improbable entities stuck together into a pit of darkness. No logic, no reason, no explanation. Just a prolonged nightmare in which fear, loneliness, and the unexplainable walk hand in hand through the shadows. In a moment, we'll start collecting clues as to the whys, the whats, and the wheres. We will not end the nightmare. We'll only explain it. Because this is the Twilight Zone. That episode, in turn, is based on uh, Pirandello's Six Characters in Search of an Author and Sartre's No Exit, which is about a diverse group of dead characters who are locked in a room together and where we get the phrase, hell is other people. Interesting. And it's, I mean, that's what this, this yeah, segment is. Definitely. Is that yeah. concept. Where are we? What are we? Who are we? None of us knows, Major. We don't know who we are. We don't know where we are. We are dead. And this is limbo. All of those also kind of examine the meta-narrative and mm -hmm. what storytelling means in relation to its characters and the audience, I That's, think. Yeah, good point. Interesting. And despite it still being very much about death it's actually a segment where no one is seen dying right right they may already be dead yes they're being transported you know through purgatory or something through you know to from from life to death to the next stage it wasn't subtle in its message i yeah. wouldn't say i yeah. feel like we knew what was happening what the the subtext was with yeah. this one but i did think it was a strong close to the movie because it despite it being sort of obvious about its message and its plot mm -hmm. um I, I was left wondering afterwards and thinking about it and you do get a, a good close with it with Saul Rubinek being the last one to enter yeah and kind of just seeing his face and his reaction mm -hmm. like the performances I thought Chelsea Ross was great as the, oh yeah the, the tedious trapper no I have not been to Fort Morgan I know little of cities. I'm a trapper, living alone mostly in these last years. But I would descend into town every so often with my pelts. Uh, sell them and talk. Keep my hand in, talk. You gotta keep your hand in, talking, even if you live in the wild. It's true, practice. In town, I would talk to them was interested. Saloon, mostly, till they asked me to take my business elsewhere. What kind of sense that makes? There was only the one saloon. Keeper called me tedious, tedious, me, if tidings from the greater world are tedious. I would descend from the mountains not having talked for many months with much to tell, much to tell, having stored considerable. Though for many years I did not live alone in the wild, I did have a consort, a stout woman of the hunk Papa Sioux. We had a companionship of sorts, but there is a lady present. A life together marked by the passing of the seasons and the corresponding travels of game. In the latter, she took very little interest. Well, 
her duties was domestic. I would track and trap and she would tarry hearthside. We did not talk. She had no English and I am not schooled in the gibberings of the nations. Well, I say we did not talk, but sometimes we would, often at length, each in our own tongue without benefit of understanding the other, but the sound of a human voice is a comfort when you're cabined up in the woods and all otherwise be but the murmur of wind and the plop of snow from an overloaded branch. Well, I said not understanding each other, but it entirely so. I could often read by means of the tenor of her speech or certain facial expressions, the emotional import of what she was saying, and she was often vexed with me. I seldom knew why. And then she moved on. Did you love her? Oh, I don't know. I never even knew her name. But I will say this. The nature of them vocal intonations and the play of feeling upon her face helped me to gather that uh, people are like ferrets or a beaver. I was going to say my top three performances maybe in this one are Tim Blake Nelson, Chelsea Ross, and Stephen Root. Yeah, Stephen Root, yeah. Which, maybe that's just my tendency to like <laughs> the, the really over-the-top humorous yes, ones, yeah. but I think you get a nod to uh, their previous film, True Grit, in that uh, one of the Reapers tell, says that he tells the story of the Midnight Caller to right. their victims, and in True Grit, you have... Um, the young girl telling Maddie Ross, yeah, yeah saying, "Hey, you want to hear the story of the Midnight Caller?" And the guys are like, "Nah, no. we're good." And then in the um, the wagon train sequence, there's another reference to True Grit. At the boarding house, uh, there's a Grandma Turner at the table, and Maddie Ross uh, shares a room with Grandma Turner at the boarding house in Fort Smith, Arkansas. Yeah. So I also wanted to point out a, a nice little segment of dialogue from from this reaper the, the more talkative reaper mm -hmm. character um that i just thought was a nice touch and says a lot about what this segment is and what this movie is he's teasing with them with the story of the midnight caller and then says you know the story but people can't get enough of them like little children because well they connect the stories to themselves i suppose and we all love hearing about ourselves, so long as the people in the stories are us, but not us. Not us in the end, especially. The midnight caller gets him, never me. I'll live forever. The, the us, but not us yeah. was especially poignant. Yeah. And then also the idea that the storyteller and the story li live on yes. beyond the, the audience. Yes. There's also this through line of a Frenchman right. going through a number of the segments. And I don't know if they're connected at all or if it's some weird in-joke from the Coens. Yeah, I don't know uh, what what it means either. There's several of the episodes have re either references to Frenchmen or French characters in it. In the Buster Scruggs episode, the name of the town that he visits is Frenchman's Gulch. And I think there's like a painting of Napoleon on a water tower or a sign or something. And David Krumholtz plays... Uh, a Frenchman uh, in the poker game that Buster uh, falls into with a very thick French accent. There's also a reference, Stephen Root references one of the bank robbers, one of the previous bank robbers uh, he mentions as a Frenchman. And uh, the, of course the final episode, Mortal Remains, features um, Saul Rubinek as a Frenchman. 
And I wondered if maybe even the Saul Rubinette character and the David Krumholtz character were somehow one and the same because they're both gamblers and they both mention noticing the other person's yeah, cards. Yeah, betting someone else's hand. Yeah. yeah. But regardless, I thought it was amusing that in in the mortal remains, it sort of ends up being like a setup to a joke, like a a Frenchman, an Englishman, an Irishman, a woman, and a trapper all get into a stagecoach. Right. <laughs> they originally said this was going to be an anthology television series, and then like shortly before its release, they're like, "No, we we're just kidding. It's a movie." So I'm not sure what the story was with that. If they never intended it to be a series or. Just found that the stories didn't merit that much time or something, I'm not sure. What would you think if it were a series? Can Could you see it being expanded into that or into that medium? Is that... Possibly some of the episodes, but I, I don't know that they really lend themselves to a yeah. lengthy story, particularly like near Algodonis. Uh, I don't know what more you would do with that. Right. I mean, I've seen a lot of people online saying... They they just wanted to see more Buster Scruggs. Sure, yeah. Which, I, I mean, I guess maybe that's like the promise of the title. Or you could even, since he's like a singing cowboy addressing the camera, he could be the through line. True. He could show up in the other segments. But really, I don't know what you would do. Like, if I, I couldn't really see his story as a multiple episode story or right. anything. I mean, it's kind of, you know, it makes its point and, and then wraps it up. I yeah. don't know. Um, what about you? Are and there really, any the, the longest one is the wagon train one. Yeah. And... It, it felt like enough. Yeah. To me, yeah. I mean, it, it. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, there wasn't really any need for. I wonder if if it was ever really intended to be a miniseries or what what the deal right. was with that. Because whenever they dropped the trailer, it was just like surprise, it's a movie now. Yeah. So hmm, I don't know. Maybe it was just misdirection from the Coens. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. And again, shot digitally at first for them. It was a con partly convenience, partly a matter of. You know, we knew we wanted to do a lot of early morning, late afternoon, evening kind of, you know, magic hour shooting. And you get a little more in terms of the stop. You get a little more latitude in terms of how much light you need shooting digitally as opposed to film. It was uh, an experiment, really. We hadn't done it before. And, you know, it's becoming overwhelmingly the, um, the norm. Um, and this seemed like a reasonable movie to give it a try you know there were 800 visual effects shots in this movie and when, when you're doing a lot of visual effects shots for whatever reason it's easier if the raw material so to speak has been shot digitally as opposed to on film it's not necessary but it's more convenient i think that at the end of the day we're very happy with the way the movie looks the sort of getting there isn't as uh, much fun, but the end result is in certain ways more convenient and it's certainly just as good. You know, if you're shooting on film, there's something that happens between when you're actually recording the information on the set and when you see it for the first time. It goes to a lab. It's, you know, it's emulsion, expo light exposing an emulsion that gets developed, goes to a lab, gets printed, comes back usually the next day or a couple of days later. When you finally see it, it reveals something. What it reveals is interesting and it's sort of unfolding. None of that happens digitally. You look at a monitor and you see pretty much exactly what you're you know, going to get. In fact, watching dailies almost becomes superfluous. So watching dailies in the old days, if you're shooting on film, used to be a sort of communal thing where at the end of the day or sometimes during lunch, everyone would get together, you would go into a theater 
and you would watch the results of the previous day's work with the whole crew or much of the crew. Shooting digitally, you almost stop watching dailies entirely. I mean, we almost stopped watching them. We've seen them on the monitor as they were being shot. Yeah, it's a funny thing. Shooting on film, you're actually making decisions and committing to how it's going to look um, to a large degree. And shooting digitally, you're it's more like you're capturing information and you're deferring all those decisions and you're going to decide later how it's going to look. There's so much latitude in what you're capturing, you can make it look like pretty much anything later in terms of contrast, in terms of color, in terms of pretty much everything. Half of what you think you're doing when you're composing a picture, you're sort of uh, deferring decisions about how it's going to look until later. When you capture it on film, there's it's actually in the grain of the negative and what you're doing, it's, it's actually in the negative and when you're capturing it digitally, you're just sort of um, recording pixels, the, all of which are negotiable later. It, it gets into why DPs are so fond of digital photography. Uh, most of them will say, what's the, if you ask them the difference, they'll say they can sleep at night. One of the things I really appreciated about this film was the musicality of it. First of all, you have the great score by Carter Burwell. Mm -hmm. um, but then you have all of these segments with songs within them. You have the many ballads of Buster Scruggs. Right. He has two or three songs yeah, in there. Yeah. You have in the final segment a couple songs. You have the One Reaper singing, um, uh, Has Anybody Here Seen Molly? Oh, yeah. Right. And then um, you have Brendan Gleeson singing a version of the famous Western song Streets of Laredo, but the original Irish folk song version yeah. about a man who gets syphilis from a yeah. woman. <laughs> As I was a-walking down by the lock As I was a-walking one morning of late Who should I spy but my own dear comrade Wrapped up in flannel so hard is his fate. I boldly stepped up to and kindly did ask him, Why are you wrapped in flannel so white? My body is injured and sadly disordered, all by a young woman, my own heart's delight. Oh, had she but told me when she disordered me. Had she but told me of it at the time. I might have got salts or pills of white mercury. But now I'm cut down in the height of my prime. And the movie opens, the opening credits have the ballad of the Streets of Laredo yes, playing over. Yes, also known as the Cowboy's Lament. Yeah.
like it's interesting that they use this Irish folk song version. That, and maybe that's a nod to how this is not your stereotypical Western. It's something that you will recognize on its front. But once we get into it, you will see as something very different and yeah. something darker as well. Yeah, I think I appreciated that it wasn't as earnest and dour as a yes. lot of recent Westerns have been. Which we've talked about in, yeah. in previous episodes, yeah. but it's a very enjoyable yeah. version. And it, although people might think that there are certain segments that drag, that's, you know, up sure, to you. Sure, But you get these little tastes of everyone and you get a taste of all these different sh- subgenres. So mm-hmm. hopefully there's one you like. Yes. But you get, you get a stagecoach story. You get a wagon train story. You yeah. get a bank robber. Right. A... You know, a singing cowboy. Yeah. And it really touches on all these different things, but doesn't repeat itself. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I enjoyed this film very much. The Coens said that when they were approaching this, they wanted to explore what they hadn't explored yet in the Western mm. subgenres. They had a couple of these little short film ideas, but didn't really know what to do with them. Right. And then to complete that, we're like, well, what, where else can we go? What else can we touch on? Can we talk about the actual premise of the book? And how it operates within the film. Sure. I guess what did you what did you think about that as the the binding element between each segment? Um, I like that. I thought it was a nice way to transition from each story, and the the little color illustrations are really uh, well done and seem like like an N.C. Wyeth type painting or something. You it's know. very stylish. Yeah. What, what, and you get the sense that it's something bigger, that there are actually is a book with written stories for yes. each one of these. Yes. And that someone has been compiling these over a long period of time. Right. There's also a great use of language in the screenplay itself. Which uh, is available for your consideration for the awards. Right. And so we were able to, to read it. And it's a fascinating read for screenwriters just because of their language they appear to have a a good knowledge of like 19th century literature and how these characters might speak it sounds very natural but their like action lines outside of the dialogue are very evocative and Mm -hmm. they're able to do a lot and to demonstrate that i just wanted to um read a page from the near algodona segment which is the james franco of stephen root right um this is at the beginning and it's Literally a page of action without dialogue, which is rare, um, I would say, in screenplays and, and often advised by screenwriting professionals as something for young screeners starting out not to do. Yeah. But it's, you know, a series of maybe 15 lines, just prose, and I'd like to read it now. So we're exterior bank, day. The door creaking open at the cut with a rusty hinged whine. The cowboy peeks out the bank's the front door, sack in one hand, gun in the other. His point of view shows the great empty plain. His horse placidly crops the grass. Wind moans. The bucket creaks over the well. The cowboy hesitates, tenses, and pushes off, heading for his horse. Boom! His shotgun blasts and kicks up dirt at his feet. And the cowboy drops his money sack and tucks and rolls to take cover behind the well housing. His horse nickers nervously and trots a few paces further out onto the prairie. It tentatively stops, a good thirty yards away, over exposed ground. The cowboy hisses at it and waves a hand inward. The horse looks at him speculatively. Its ears flick. The cowboy looks toward the wind-blown adobe structure. No sign of life. Very present, the creak of the bucket over the well. The cowboy looks at the sack of money abandoned in no man's land. The wind stirs in the mouth of the sack. Bills flutter and rise like bees leaving a hive and then twist away in the breeze. The adobe structure, still, the cowboy tensed. The bank's front door bursts open and the old teller boils out, cackling maniacally, waving his shotgun. There is now something strange about his get-up, which seems to be clanking as he runs. The hunched cowboy fires at him over the well wall. Clank! 
as pan. he gets hit in his pan pot Pots armor. Pots and pan armor, yeah. No, that's a great uh, page of of, uh, of writing. I but mean. you have these interjections of, you know, onomatopoeias of clang and boom. Yes. And, um, you, but you know what the scene is doing. You know what the well, <clears throat> the yes. sounds of the well and the action of the door and the adobe structure and all of this. Meanwhile, you get a good sense of place with James Franco. Right. Yeah, it evokes uh, the scene perfectly, yeah. It's it's really well done. And just to wrap things up, I think the question that everybody asks when a new Coen Brothers movie comes out or a new any kind of auteur director like this comes out is how does this rank with their other movies? Is it up to snuff? Is How does it fit into their filmography? What mm-hmm. did you think about that? It definitely is up to snuff, I would say. I think it ranks well in their filmography. Um, I'm not sure exactly where, I mean... Uh, How does it compare to their other westerns, would you say? It's definitely different than their other westerns. I guess their other two, True Grit and No Country for Old Men, are much more dramatic, yes. serious, yes. stark. Yes, this one, much a lot more humor. But it, it definitely hits the, the various themes of the Coen brothers and things you've seen before, like just the cruel fate of that happens to these hapless characters, that no matter what you do, that, you know... Something you know, there's no you know escaping death or tragedy or whatever. It you know it reminds me of different types of their work. Um, I guess it just depends on. I think so many people have so many different ideas of what is a good Coen Brother movie and what's not, and and so it just depends on you know your mileage may vary on what. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. like you're saying, you do get a lot of things that they've addressed in other films. Yeah, like you get yeah, like you're saying, I think they tackle themes that we've seen them tackle in other works, like turning the idea of movie making itself on its head like in maybe Hail Caesar or Barton Fink. And like any genre film they've done, they always tweak it a little bit or twist it and and I think they enjoy playing in genre films. Like it gives them mm-hmm. sort of set of rules they can break or turn, you know. And they're clearly lovers of film and yes. know it very well and can explore it with ease. Yes, yes. Um I think it this one also evokes a sense like a literary sense to it, mm-hmm. like, you know, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou with the the Odyssey. They're making kind of an old story, old epic story, an old fable or something yeah. in, into film form. Yeah. And there are a lot of like almost moral lessons being taught here. Right, and right. Some of them are quite simple, like in the Liam Neeson Harry Melling one, you just have these two characters and how one treats the other, mm-hmm. or you have these sort of philosophical discussions within the stagecoach one. True. You know, overall, the nature of death across across all of them. That's going to wrap it up for this episode. We definitely, we both enjoyed this film and definitely recommend it. Um, and again, you can check it out on Netflix right now. Right. There are a lot of faces you might recognize. Right. If you're a Coen Brothers fan, um, I think you'll find something to like out of this. I mean, I think, you know, you may... I, I've heard a lot of debate on the episodes of who likes what, but I think it's its definitely worth your time, and, and, and definitely if you're a Western lover, I think you'll like it too. And a notable film of 2018. It'll be interesting to see where award season takes us. Not that that means anything, right, but right. I'm sure it will be one that's talked about. Yeah, especially being on Netflix, and, and the Coen brothers have been treated well with awards of recent years, so we'll see how that works out for them. We'll be back soon uh, hopefully with uh, another western episode probably something uh, a little older a little classic we'll uh, rewind yeah so so long from me felicity him clarence and the spirit of the original san saba songbird tommy lee jones oh nice happy trails <laughs>